The podcast for the inquisitive diver. Hey there, dive buddies, and welcome to the show. Now, if you'd have told me last year that I would be talking to my next guest, I would have thought you were barking mad or suffering from decompression sickness. However, the Scuba Goat podcast has come a long way since my dining room table in lockdown. I am extremely excited, honoured and humbled to be talking all things oceanic with a woman who epitomises the words conservation and exploration, but also the show's title as one of the greatest of all time scuba diving pioneers and a personal hero of mine. Dr. Sylvia Earle is National Geographic's Explorer in Residence, known by many other names, such as her deepness, a living legend and the hero of the planet, to name just a few. Sylvia Earle, welcome to the show. Thank you for joining me today. Oh, great to be on board. On board. I love it. Uh, <laughs> Here we are. <laughs> how, are th- how, are, how are things in the US right now? Because, I mean, obviously travel's really restricted. So has that limited uh, the work that you do? Well, it has kept me drier than I like, but it has given me a chance to literally dive in to trying to figure out the latest updates on the state of the ocean Mm, mm. that resulted in a book that's about to come out in November about about the ocean, (laughs) the the past, present, and some educated guesses about what the future will be Mm. based on Uh, what we do or or fail to do. I thank you for the copy as well. It's a beautiful book and so much information in there. It's fantastic. It's National Geographic. Uh, let's see. Ocean, a global odyssey. I should be able to remember the title. <laughs> <laughs> I love the simplicity of the cover as well. You've got the um, angelfish on the front there. Well, that's the, I think on the introductory page, the cover it's actually a just an amazing photograph of gazillions of fish and one small figure that represents a diver. It's a great ah. picture. Ah, that's the picture I'm missing. I've got I've got the uh, I've got the angelfish. <laughs> that's it. You've got the, the introductory pages. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's beautiful. But we'll, we'll delve deeper into the book in a little while. But um, let, let's talk about you for a little bit. Um, so. I've kind of followed you for a number of years, as you may guess. Um, I'd like to know uh, from yourself, you've had many, many fantastic moments in your life, but are there any defining moments that stand out to you? I suppose first time I took the plunge was a defining moment. (laughs) I just could not imagine that you could actually breathe underwater until I tried it. Mm. And then like, oh, then it was so easy that uh, I got truly rapidly hooked on the concept and have been doing it ever since. That was back in 1953. We had two words of instruction. I was with eight students taking a class in marine biology mm-hmm. at Florida State University, summer class. And <laughs> We had two of the first scuba units in the country. There were no diving organizations except the U.S. Navy, but we didn't qualify for that. (laughs) So (laughs) we we watched what the fish were doing, 
and followed their example, except that they were breathing underwater, and now we could too. It's a marvelous concept, isn't it? It really is. There are limits, obviously, but we didn't know as clearly then as we do now about what those limits are that you can get into trouble with staying too long, too deep, too much oxygen, (laughs) and a lot of things that we just learned by doing. Did you you ever have any problems yourself? So far, so good. I've been involved with decompressing a buddy uh, after too many deep dives in succession in Truck Lagoon many years ago. But fortunately, there was a, one of these one-person chambers that was available, but nobody present to operate it. But the instructions really? were, were taped on the chamber. <laughs> so Chuck Nicklin, who's a great longtime friend and, and diver, uh, together we figured it out and, and our victim, who is Al Giddings, who has <laughs> thousands of hours of successful underwater diving, amazing photographer, filmmaker, mm. but but we just he just stayed a little bit too long, a little too deep, and tried to brush off the symptoms at first. But you know, nature doesn't pay any attention to our rules. Yeah. So anyway, we he's, we successfully took him down to 165 feet, kept him there for 11 hours. <laughs> I mean, after we, we followed the rules and got him back safely and back in the water two days later. So <laughs> Crikey. Oh, good on you. He's, he's Scientists, marine biologists, and uh, compression nurses. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Well, I, I I really respect that it having the right training to undertake operating a chamber is is really uh, desirable. But we had no choice. All the right people were out of town, so we did what we had to do. So how, how did um, you know? You say it was right at the start of scuba equipment. Uh, being available for you to use was it was it just a chance of fortune that it was something that was offered to the university or how did it come about it was was that creative scientist teacher harold hum who just thought that it was logical that if you want to explore the ocean you should get into the ocean Hmm. so he, I'm not sure how he managed to procure two of the first units with the double hose regulators with a big fat mouthpiece that <laughs> I could barely put it in my mouth. And we had a, a Desco face mask with air supplied from a surface compressor. We also tried that. And we also had, we had three methods that we used. Um, a diving helmet that we just put on our shoulders and weights on our feet and around our <laughs> our middle to walk around. We did not go ultra deep. We stayed probably probably the deepest dives we did during that summer 
1953, about 20 meters. Mm-hmm. And it was later, I guess, first deepish kinds of dives that I started making were <laughs> under the the flippers of Navy divers at the Panama City diving facility in Florida. They still have a diving center there. But at the time, it was not with a high level of security that is now imposed on military operations everywhere. I, I was working on studying marine plants in the Gulf of Mexico for my dissertation. And I traveled all up and down the coast, sometimes with a buddy, sometimes just on my own, because I don't know, Some again, I, I fully respect and I abide by the principles of safety. Buddy diving really does save lives. And mm. But this early days, we didn't have all the experience that now really keeps people alive and it enables us to go safely deeper and stay longer than than we imagined would be possible before. And so watching the Navy divers and diving with them offshore in the Gulf of Mexico and making a free ascent unintentionally, you might remember or may have heard about the J-valve that uh-huh. tanks were provided with that you breathed the air down to the point where you couldn't easily breathe anymore. And then you release the last five minutes of air. So during that last five minutes, you, you button things up and came back to the surface. Now, of course <laughs> you can measure how much air you have in your tank. Imagine not knowing we didn't know yeah. how deep you are. We did not have pressure gauges or depth gauges, or and that nowadays it's uh, if you hit fifty bar, you've got to go now. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> well, we just stay here till we run out of air, and then just pull a lever and hope there's some more. <laughs> <laughs> well, the good news is that we have predecessors who've been out there, lots of people doing lots of things, learning, and also. I've been on the board of DAN, the Divers Alert Network. I've done that on two occasions now. And it's great to have an organization that is really focused on diver safety and to do the the real research to understand what are the limits. If you get into a jam, what do you do? <laughs> and it's a, a really intriguing concept that we can take an air-breathing creature such as we are (laughs) and safely go for extended periods of time. And saturation diving, I've enjoyed that too on 10 different occasions now, but the first time in 1970, it was still experimental. And, well, I guess (laughs) all of this is still we're still learning as we go about things that we haven't anticipated, but the idea that you can allow your tissues to become fully saturated with compressed air or other mixes of gases. And once they're really saturated, you can stay in theory infinitely, but certainly for days and weeks or even months 
under pressure and then have the same time for decompression, whether you're staying for 24 hours or 24 days or maybe even 24 months. Mm. I don't know if anybody stayed two years, but anyway, two months. (laughs) Yes. I mean, I guess commercial divers really do have long saturation dives. The longest I've saturated is two weeks. Yeah, it's it's no small dive, is it? It's great. <laughs> you forget your <laughs> your your first. You, you really, at least I, slipped into that zone where you almost forget your breathing, mm. and that's kind of dangerous because you have to keep remembering. I don't really belong here. <laughs> I have to be, be mindful that I have. I'm an air breather. And I'm not holding my breath. I'm breathing compressed air or mixed mixture of gases, depending on the well, circumstances. It is, it is a form of meditation, isn't it? You know, I, I look at my she loves her yoga and whatnot. But um, <laughs> for me, being under the water is just so, as you say, zen. You become so one with the water, mm. at least in warm water. Now, cold water, you never forget. <laughs> <laughs> Why do you think I left the UK? It's too cold there. <laughs> full alert all the time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, you do touch on um, living underwater in, uh, in the book and uh, with the ladies and talking about, you know, you go out, you go, as though you're going out for a walk or down to the corner yeah. shop to get your pint of milk. And, you know, there's yeah. that grouper and there's that moray eel. Yeah, get to know your neighbors. The, the routine of your neighbors, yeah. Well, that for me was transformative, getting to know individual fish and where they live and how they behave. As individuals, it really should be no surprise. Cats, dogs, horses, birds, our fellow vertebrates, that our other fellow vertebrates, the fish, similarly have faces, attitudes, personality. Some of them have very complicated social structure. Some team up, mate for life. I just came across a paper written by Eugenie Clark, known as the shark lady, but she was ever so much more than one who studied sharks and and started the Moat Marine Laboratory in Florida that still focuses on sharks as a specialty. But she studied tilefish. They're monogamous, which means they choose a mate and they stick together for for years. Not just... Seahorses also tend to be monogamous. They don't live as long as tilefish. Tilefish can be around for 20 years, maybe more. And to imagine that, I mean, not people don't even obey those rules, you know? <laughs> <laughs> but here are these fish. <laughs> Steady as she goes. They choose a mate and they, they stick together. It's really something that fishermen tend not to take into account. A fish is just, you know, either bait or it's <laughs> something to catch and eat or catch and sell. But for those who have the privilege of spending time underwater, you really see life in the sea, not just fish, but lobsters take on personality and have habits, social structure, and behaviors that are 
really intriguing when you get to focus on them and think of them as just miracles, <laughs> creatures that are the result of literally hundreds of millions of years of give and take. And they're here with us. Yeah. And so many people, when I have these discussions with people about what's it like underwater and I refer back to being a kid and most kids, girls and boys have a little dream every now and then of, of visiting a far off planet and meeting aliens, et cetera, et cetera. Well, step into the water and you've done it. Absolutely. And yes, it's so many ways they seem alien, like an octopus. <laughs> oh, I'd love to be an octopus, wouldn't you? <laughs> Change color, they just... make make your skin take all different shapes and move your arms and your whole body can just be so flexible. On the other hand, we now understand what has taken all preceding history, but mostly what we've learned in the last 50 or 60 years about how all life is connected and that we share genetic makeup and, and composition to a very large extent with most of the rest of life on earth, not just our fellow primates mm. like chimpanzees and, and other um, great of the great apes where we, we have very close, like 98% similarity to chimpanzees. It's that 2% that makes all the, the big difference. But when you look at even bacteria, we have DNA in common. We can capitalize on that similarity, the chemistry of life, by harnessing microbe power to synthesize things that are useful to us, such as uh, certain pharmaceuticals that, that we use, but they're synthesized by bacteria and <laughs> insulin, for example. I think that may not be the only source, but it is a source. It's the chemistry of life, yeah. and it's shared across all variations on the theme of living creatures, from elephants to eels, <laughs> it's human beings in between, and, and all the diversity of life in the ocean. So they're alien by some ways of looking at it, but they're very familiar, the, the same basic chemistry of life. And yet the wonderful thing about that is how different each individual is, not just we can tell an elephant from an eel, of course, but you can tell every elephant from every other elephant, every cat from every other cat, every human from every other human, every cod from every other cod or tuna. And that's a concept that makes my head go wah, wah, wah. <laughs> right. All this similarity that holds us all together, but coupled that with enormous diversity of life. Hmm. Each and every one of us are individual, aren't we? Yes, right. It's a beautiful thing. I want to ask about Mission Blue. Um, yes. I did watch the, the documentary again the other day, 
for I've not watched it for a while, but I think it's fifth or sixth time now. Um, big shout out to Fisher Stevens, one of my. I know, I know the Mission Blue itself is a much more important um, <laughs> point to make, but seeing Fisher Stevens feeling rough as hell on a boat rocking in the oceans and you're completely <laughs> oblivious to it and working away i think is just fantastic <laughs> <laughs> well i have to say i i think no one is immune from what is known as seasickness mal de mer hmm. i have experienced it and i know what it's like to be so sick that you you <laughs> You think you're going to die, and then you wish you could. <laughs> you <laughs> feel so bad. But fortunately, I, I don't often uh, succumb. Yeah. I One of my best dive buddies talked me out of it once. He said, you know, you just need to make the ocean your friend. Dance with the ocean. When the ocean is rocking and rolling, just go with it and embrace it and enjoy it. And you can't always get away with that, but mostly it's a mindset. It's not always. I, I mean, I've seen people, and I've experienced it myself. It's you might have gotten sick standing on try <laughs> on the dock, but but it's exacerbated when you get out and back and forth in the sea. But mainly, I love it. Yeah. I never sleep as well as I uh, anywhere as as well as I do when I'm at sea. I just. But I don't want to sleep. I want to be awake twenty four seven. Just soak it up. <laughs> now you had a, you did have a, um, a special moment. We'll come back to Mission Blue in a moment. But I'm doing tangent thing here. Um, the, the the gym suit um, again. You talk about it in the book, and um, you know, being so deep underwater, and the, that moment of of turning the lights out and seeing the life. That's got to be something that just is unforgettable. I'm sure that any diver listening can 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 yeah empathize with that feeling of going as deep as you can on a on any one dive, and yet you see that the ocean keeps going and the fish keep going, the the life, the the desire to go deeper and stay longer is always there. <laughs> and having a suit, a system, a diving system that enabled me to continue breathing air at the same pressure that we're breathing in this conversation, one atmosphere, and be able to go down with my arms and legs in, encased in, in a protective shell like a crab. <laughs> <laughs> so that I could, and like a crab, to have joints so that I can move, not merely with the dexterity that we have sitting here, but nonetheless, to be able to be a diver walking <laughs> and to do it at, at 300 plus meters, almost 400 meters, where at the edge of darkness, I could still see the difference between up and down day, I mean, light above and dark below, but that was that was transformative. It's what led me to start working with engineers to build submersibles, personal submersibles, one person systems initially, now working on on three person systems to be able to have a experienced 
pilot and two observers, divers, if you will. Mm-hmm. But anybody can drive the submarine. That's the joy. I mean, most submarines require a dedicated pilot. And if you're there as a passenger, <laughs> you get to have the view, but you don't have the controls. Yeah. And it's like going with a diver piggyback. You don't have control about where to go. <laughs> you just have to go along for the ride, like a taxi driver or passenger. So I am thrilled to now be, again, looking over the shoulders of engineers and really seeing that vision come true that you can take one or two or three or more people, but three-person systems now that are still small enough so they can be transported in a standard shipping container to places anywhere in the world and go down to a thousand meters. Wow. That's into and below the twilight zone where where it's really eternally dark except for bioluminescence. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we um when I was teaching back in Thailand so a number of years ago, you know, we'd take people on their first night dive and you'd waft around in the water at the end of the dive so they could see the bioluminescence and there'd be little oh, little sparkles like, everywhere. It it's ethereal. Yeah, I can't imagine what it's like deeper down. It must be an amazing sight. I don't know why people resist night diving. For me, it's the best. It's the best. (laughs) (laughs) Well, for one thing, it simulates what it's like all of the time in most of the living space on the planet. Because when you think about it, where is life on Earth? Most of it's in the ocean, and most of it is below where light penetrates. Average depth of the ocean is 4,000 meters. The maximum, 11,000, seven miles down. And there's life all the way from the surface to the greatest depths and even beneath the bottom of the ocean. Mm. (laughs) For at least another kilometer or two, depending on where water is able to trickle down through the bottom of the ocean and provide that basic ingredient that all life needs. It's water, of course, Mm. not sunlight. Sunlight powers photosynthesis, carbon capture. You know, it's what has shaped the nature of the world we live in. Mm. But below where sunlight penetrates, life prospers. Greatest abundance, the greatest diversity Life on Earth lives in the dark all of the time, Mm. and it's cold, but it's beautiful. And and what's great is divers are able to be at the upper edge of this vast realm that makes Earth habitable for all life, whether it's ocean or terrestrial. We all need the ocean. (laughs) I think one of the questions that you put to me in advance of this of this conversation was your favorite underwater creature. Well, <laughs> that's one thing, but my favorite sea creature, if you put it that way, uh-huh. it's got to be humans. I, I mean, I love my species. I am one. I have yeah. kids. I have grandkids. What many people don't appreciate is that we're sea creatures. We need the ocean every much, 
every bit as much as any whale or any coral reef. No ocean, no life, no us. Mm. So anyway, well, <laughs> there you go. Let's let's expand on that one because, I mean, everybody um, talks about how the world needs the oceans and its inhabitants and its plankton and its sharks. And how how can we actually put that into perspective that people will truly understand? Um, I think trying to get the information across sometimes gets a bit um, sideways and people lose the reality of, of what we need. That is the biggest problem facing our species, facing the ocean, facing our future. That is, people don't know. The knowledge is there. The knowledge is available. And the good news, it's there and it is available. And more and more people are tuning in. Since that first view of Earth from space that really marked the beginning of of a new wave of looking at the whole world as one system. Many scientists and philosophers and just people generally had already taken this into account that everything connects. Uh, A class I took in in botany at Duke University back in 19... mm, I think it was... 19, it was in the early 60s anyway. No, it was before, it was in the 50s, (laughs) because I had a 10-year break, getting married and having kids and all that, between getting my master's and getting my PhD. It was in the 50s when Dwight Billings, who's an ecologist, showed an image that showed, it was just a circle, just filled with crisscross lines, and it was looking at, how everything connects to everything else. He figured it out, and he wasn't alone, but he he graphically portrayed that you you touch one part of or pull on one of these little strings and the whole system is influenced. And if you pull hard enough, you know, you really can shake the whole world. Now, Mm. here we are. We can see that what happens in the winds crossing the Sahara, blow sand all the way across the Atlantic Ocean that land in the Caribbean, the Gulf of Mexico, and bring with it the spores of fungi that have caused diseases in corals that, you know, we couldn't make those connections mm. until we had enough information to be able to connect the dots. We haven't known ge- geologically how the world functions, how continents move around, that plate tectonics did not understand the nature of (laughs) that phytoplankton in the ocean do the heavy lifting in terms of generating oxygen, capturing carbon. Yes, trees do a lot of it. Thank you, trees, for helping keep me alive and all the rest of us. But plankton in the ocean, phytoplankton, does much, much more and has done so long before there were trees gradually changing the atmosphere of Earth from what was mostly carbon dioxide and and nitrogen into what we now have, still a lot of nitrogen, but 20% oxygen and just enough carbon dioxide to power 
photosynthesis to keep green things growing, producing food, continuing to generate oxygen. But we didn't know until fairly recently in the course of human civilization. I think we live at the sweet spot in time. It's the first time that we've been able to understand how everything does connect and that we're part of this really intricate, closely wired system that what we do to nature, we're doing to ourselves. And and we've been so oblivious that we've consumed big chunks of our life support system, thinking that there's nothing we could do. We're just these tiny little primates. We surely can't alter the nature of nature. Mm. But here we are in 2021 saying, what we put into the atmosphere, what we put into the ocean, what we've taken from the land, clear-cutting forests, what we've taken from the ocean, clear-cutting the ocean, mm. so that 90% of the sharks, the tunas, the swordfish, so many creatures, just on my watch, your watch, we've, we've been watching this yeah. collapse of the very systems that we need to maintain a habitable planet. So a lot of people still don't, haven't gotten that message. Mm. The knowledge is certainly there. Anybody can put the pieces together because we've got this great puzzle with pieces coming into place. So how do we know what the weather is going to be like in a couple of weeks? We used to look at the farmer's almanac yeah. <laughs> and, and thought that we had got heads up about what it's going to be like next March. But in fact, we were beginning even then to see patterns and make rough predictions about what we might be able to expect based on experience from the past. But now we're up in the sky with satellites, with instruments that can take measurements, look at the whole world in a, and hold the world in our hands, if you will, mm. and, and see it, calculate it, measure it, and predict <laughs> with far greater accuracy than old farmer's almanac ever could. And we take it for granted, or starting to anyway. But there's so much more that we we need to understand and appreciate and put on the balance sheet, which is why Mission Blue really got started to try to be a conduit for information and a conduit for the message that we must take care of the natural world, land and sea. Our focus is on the blue part, Mm -hmm. as if our lives depend on it, because they do. So it's an investment in your life to plant a tree, to protect a reef, to let the fish, instead of, unless you're really hungry... (laughs) (laughs) let the fish stay in the ocean (laughs) because they are so important and we have taken so many for so long that the populations are in serious decline so people ask me if I eat fish and I say I used to I know what they taste like (laughs) but I also know how important they are and that I want my fish alive in the ocean and all the rules and regulation, the laws that are in place favor those who don't care about them alive. They want them as a source of money. Yeah. Mostly. It's, I mean, most of the heavy fish, industrial fishing is not about feeding people. It's about feeding your bank account 
it's wildlife is is money monetizing yeah. wildlife we used to do it with birds and elephants and just about every other living thing on the land basically we've we've changed that habit we haven't changed with respect to ocean wildlife except whales we did change with whales seals sea lions our fellow mammals but not fish mm. i guess we'll get there someday i hope we do because it's it's the key to the blue carbon part of the carbon equation. If we could just keep more fish in the ocean, we'll keep more carbon in the ocean. We'll heal the processes that have taken hundreds of millions of years to develop in our favor, and it's taking us a few decades to significantly you know break those systems, carve them up, yeah. sell them well, off. I think you hit the nail on the head there as well. It's all about money at the end of the day. People wanting to make monies and have a comfortable life for themselves and not thinking of, of others and other species on, on planet Earth. Well, we think of fish as free, free goods. Anybody yeah. can go out and take them. and no, You don't have to pay anybody to do it. You have to get there. Your boat costs something. But mm. perversely, the large-scale industrial fishing fleets – that are now extracting millions of tons of ocean wildlife. Mm. The biggest wildlife trafficking, biggest wildlife trade on the planet is ocean wildlife. Yeah. And we're, we don't think of it that way. We think of, <laughs> think of pandas and polar bears and birds and things, but it's biggest wildlife trafficking is in legal extraction of wildlife subsidized with in most countries with large industrial fleets have large industrial subsidies, mm. fuel subsidies, loans to gear up and, and agencies that foster the extraction of ocean wildlife, not the care of ocean wildlife. Some countries have both. Australia has both. The United States has both. We have conservation methods. At the same time, we have we have investments to help fishermen catch fish and market them mm. and get gear that works. Find where the fish are so that they can be commercially extracted. And yet, it's a false accounting because I don't see how we can possibly imagine that fish are free. Yeah. There, it, there's a it, cost to all of us when we take them out of the ocean. And it's a massive cost. For, the, for those that can see it, it is a massive cost. And my only fear is that the increase of awareness is slower than the increase in the people who want to grab more money from, from the <laughs> oceans. Well, Hopefully we can reverse the, that somehow. Part of the, the, the reality is in communication is absolutely the key that the rate of being able to share knowledge the way we are right now mm. is unprecedented mm. it's really the best hope we've got and it's what one of the principal things that mission blue does is to have a robust form of communicating to the public we have expeditions to these special places that champions have nominated as hope spots 
and there are 140 hope spots now globally, many more in the wings that go through a process of review by a council of scientists. We work with the International Union for the Conservation of Nature Mm -hmm. to have this process. If you have a place that you know and you love and you're willing to commit, commit to doing something to go from where it is to get to a better place, more protection, ultimately full protection for places like, how about the Coral Sea? Hmm. How about the Great Barrier Reef? It's now about one third protected, but even within the Marine Park Authority, it means that two thirds is open for extraction or Hmm. exploitation of one form or another. Uh, It's not like national parks on the land where you don't shoot the birds, you don't cut the trees. (laughs) But in many of the places in the ocean that are called parks, including in my country, the National Marine Sanctuaries actually encourage sport fishing. It's a way to get people out to enjoy the ocean. Well, for me, there's no joy in killing things. Mm. I'd much rather encourage people to go dive in, go see these creatures and respect them. And if you get, if you really like Eugenie Clark, she gets to know a fish or a pair of fish or a family of fish year after year after year, that fish lives right there. (laughs) And you get to Jane Goodall took 15 years getting to know individual chimpanzees and families really well, their social structure, their habits, their personalities. So there are individuals who are doing this with whales. Shane Garrow, who's a whale scientist, has been working with a family, family, a resident population, families plural, in Dominica, in the Caribbean. Mm-hmm. He recognizes the big mama whales that stick around like for their lifetime, their residence. And so do the, the daughters, the young males when they're seven or eight years old, they take off. Yeah. They go see the world, but then they come back, they come back and say, Hey, how's it going? You know, whatever they say in whale. <laughs> hey, <mom. laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, how are the sisters doing anyway? <laughs> but, but, it's getting that long experience of getting to know a place and getting to know individuals, respecting them as neighbors, if you will, as fellow creatures on this amazing miracle of a blue planet. Yeah. So the champions that we have now around the world are just so important to working with their communities, working with their governments, working internationally. We want to encourage protection of the high seas beyond national jurisdiction. That's about half the world. And divers really represent a powerful voice. You, mm. you know that you, those of you who get wet <laughs> go under the surface, you know you've, you've met fish and sometimes the same fish repeatedly. That barracuda that 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 is really curious and tends to follow you around. I mean, he's never going to bite you, but he's just really wants to know who you are. 
<laughs> think you're watching the fish and <laughs> barracuda, they're watching you. <laughs> yeah. But other fish too, too. They, they're like any other creature, I suppose. They're curious. Why should we? You get to recognize the in individuals, don't you? And um, absolutely, I mean, yes. Picking up on that, there was a there was a I can't remember who posted it now, but there was a, po a photo of a couple of barracuda at Richelieu Rock on the west coast of Thailand. And it went up maybe last week, and I knew exactly which fish it was because it's in exactly the same spot it was three and a half oh. years ago when I was li living and diving there. And if you look closely, now sometimes it's it's a little tricky because the but. If you look at a school of fish, they all look alike, right? If you look at a crowd of people shopping on in a holiday, they all kind of look alike. Yeah. <laughs> they certainly must look alike to a bird flying over. Oh, they're those primates. You know, <laughs> they all look alike. But you know, it's not just what we wear that sets us apart. We have faces. We have, you know, posture and personality. Anyway. It is so obvious when you really study a school of fish or a group of parrotfish or certainly as Shane Garrow and, and others who've studied whales. Um, another individual, Randy Wells, has studied dolphins mm -hmm. in the region around Sarasota, Florida. He's been studying them now for almost 50 years. He's wow. gone through generations of moms and offspring hmm. and sees how has observed and documented not just casually but I mean <laughs> even sampling the DNA to make sure that his observations are are accurate because again like it, all humans we have our unique fingerprints and we have our unique DNA so do dolphins so do potato cod hmm. so do lobsters everyone it's a such a big idea that the chemistry of life is so consistent across all the great diversity of life and yet <laughs> it is it is so filled with potential that every single individual is different yeah. i love it yeah it's <laughs> it's it's to me the greatest miracle of of life that we can have that consistency coupled with diversity. Yeah. I, I, I want to mention um, Christina Zanato and her girls, her sharks. And we say about the, uh, you know, when you look at a mass and you see little Christina on the seabed and a mass of sharks around her. So the uns unknowing eye, it's just a mass of sharks. Yeah. She's known some of those sharks individuals yes. for 12, 13 years. They've got their own yes. names. They come and have a yes. little siesta with her. You know, <laughs> it's brilliant. And and that they, you know, we resist saying that they become quotes friends, but they certainly recognize individuals. Mm. They and and behave differently around different individuals. It's true with cats and dogs and horses. Why should it be any different from from sharks who recognize individuals and they're familiar and they pose no threat? Whereas a newcomer might go in and behave in a different fashion, appear to be aggressive, and wish the sharks would be gone. Yeah. Right? 
<laughs> yeah. And it's uh, the the nice thing I like about it is that it gets rid of that that old belief or rubbish saying that that fish have like thirty seconds of of memory. That one's well out the window. Anyone who believes that nowadays is deluded. <laughs> <laughs> G'day Scoobagate listeners, Rod here, producer of the show. I hope that you're enjoying this episode and that you're subscribed and following the pod on your favourite app. Please keep an eye out for the all-new Scoobagate website coming soon. Now, back to Matt and the show. Um, I want to go back to Mission Blue and the Hope Spots. And you mentioned we've got, what did you say, was 140 Hope Spots now? So far. Cool. Now, I was going to ask how they're created and how it all comes about. I would actually like to pose that there's a particular location in the Solomon Sea in Papua New Guinea, and it's off the coast of Oro province, and it's called Cape Nelson, and I used to work there. Hmm. And it is, without a shadow of a doubt, one of the most beautiful places I've ever visited and had the pleasure to dive. And I've taken a few people back there as well. But if I wanted to propose Cape Nelson as a... um, Hope spot. What's the process? How would I go about that? The easiest thing to do is go to the Mission Blue website and ask that question. And step by step, you can be led through how to submit an application to the Hope Spot Council of this volunteer group of global scientists are not there to say, yes, this qualifies. No, it doesn't. No, they're there to help you mm-hmm. get from through the process and to help you not just to get a place noted as officially recognized as a hope spot, but you become part of this network of hope, this family of places where information is shared gathered and shared images are put into the, the the system that stories good good news bad news here's my problem here's how i solved it mm-hmm. i've got a problem any got any advice those kinds of things become available to those who pr- become a part of the network mm. and it, it's public i mean anybody can tune in to this but one of the things that is important is to be able to essentially define the area so it becomes a place so that there's a map that indicates what piece of the ocean is under consideration as a hope spot. And within that area, to do what you can to characterize it, who lives there? If you are able to either get, get a take or get photographs, mm-hmm. If you're able to consistently or even from time to time gather information, data, there's a place to go to put that in the system so that change over time can be assessed and measured so that you hope that next year you'll see that there's there's progress, improvement, or mm-hmm. not. If not, then what's going on? You share your stories, share your concerns. Um and, and the real goal is to, to develop full protection, mm. whether it's you have to do that. Unlike the land where people can own a chunk of land 
and protect it. In the ocean, it takes working with the government locally, nationally, or in the case of the high seas, internationally. Mm. And it may seem daunting, but that's how it works. And yeah. and it, it does work. People do have influence. Use your power. Use your knowledge, your superpower of knowing. And the special edge you have is those who explore under the surface. Uh, tell people what you see. Anyway, so mm. we work with the company called Esri, the Global Information Systems Company. It's based in California. So that every place has a story map and this framework where you can put data, images, stories, so that your hope spot becomes a place, really a place you can embrace. Mm. People are tend to be place-based. <laughs> you know, you, you get to know a place, your home, and you can extend that into the ocean. Some of these places that have been designated are quite intimate, but others are very large, like the Sargasso Sea. Mm-hmm. It's a huge area, and no one country owns it, but it is a part of what what needs our, our respect. And there is an alliance of people, the Sargasso Sea Alliance, working with governments in the whole region to try to enhance protection for the Sargasso Sea. And in other cases, one example is in Mexico, Cabo Pomo. It's it's a few square miles, but (laughs) it really is loaded with great stories about a fishing community that saw that the fish were disappearing, decided to stop killing them, started caring for them, started to realize their greater value alive than on our plates. Mm-hmm. And they're, they have a thriving dive tourism operation that is is more consistent than when you take 30-year-old fish out of the ocean, it's gone. Yeah. It, it's free, but once it's out of the ocean, it doesn't, doesn't even come back in 30 years. You've disrupted the system. Yeah. And some of the fishing techniques that are now being applied are not just hook and line. You extract, and there's a hole left in the, in the system. But trawling is devastating. It takes the whole ecosystem on the and, – and so much bycatch. Yeah. It's, it's a very messy business. So we're trying across the board to eliminate destructive techniques for extraction of wildlife. Mm-hmm. Well, we, we've got a, a destructive technique going on down here, and it's been going on for years, and that's the, the shark nets and drum lines off the, the coast of Queensland and New South Wales. And, um, you know, horrible news come through a, a few days ago of a, a humpback whale that's been caught up in one of the nets. And it, it just keeps happening time and time again. I visited Beulah Davis at the shark, uh, I think they call it the Shark Research Institute, Mm-hmm. And this was, let me think, that would have been about 19, in the 1970s. Okay. I first, and, uh, no, sorry, that, I did a, a flip, that was not in Australia, that That's was like- in South, 
that was in South Africa, Priola Davis. The same thing, though, same idea, that you have these nets and the idea is to keep people safe. Mm. <laughs> well, you're not keeping people safe by killing sharks. We need the sharks. They keep us safe. They keep the ocean safe. But it, it's so seductive because we have this mindset that sharks are dangerous and we're protecting ourselves, right? Mm. Good shark. The only good shark is a dead shark. And that South African facility, it was in Durban mm-hmm. near there uh, that had the same mindset that we now see in Australia that, and, and, and along the, wherever those shark nets are being deployed. Mm. Yeah. It's, um, it's something that people are fighting against. And that I, was, I was speaking to Andre Borrell a couple of episodes ago, who's the director of um, Envoy Sharkle, a great documentary. And if you've not seen it yet, see if you can find it. It's brilliant. But it focuses on the shark nets and, and how antiquated they are and, and quite frankly, how dangerous they are for, for us as humans because the, the catch that's occurring in the nets is actually on the inside, not on the outside. So the sharks have already been into the waters where we're splashing around and they're going out again. Well, in 2020... The international, the the meetings in Davos, World Economic Forum, the International Monetary Fund had commissioned a study about the value of whales with respect to the carbon that they hold connected to climate, carbon value of whales. And they calculated hmm, about a trillion dollars worth of carbon is held in the number of whales that now exist on the planet. As it relates to climate, blue carbon. Mm. So if it works for whales, it has to carry over. It has to be the same for sharks. How much blue carbon is captured, sequestered, and ultimately under normal circumstances would be taken to the depths of the ocean where long-term carbon storage takes place. And while they're living carbon-based units, they're giving back nutrients that power the phytoplankton. Just as mm. whales, when they eat, they give nutrients back to the ocean mm. and foster the photosynthesis that is so vital for carbon capture, oxygen production. It's the system. It's the way the world works. Yeah. Those who are out there killing sharks because they think they're doing something good or doing something terribly wrong, yeah. terribly bad for yeah. not just the sharks, all of us are paying the price. So I don't know what it's going to take. I, I tried with a, every way I know how. And yeah. if you come up with some brilliant ideas that you can communicate to your listeners, to your friends, to anybody, we've got to, it's not just about fins. It's about sharks. Mm. It's about tuna. It's about cod. It's about, orange roughy it's about krill it's about the living ocean Mm. that holds the planet steady this is a climate issue we know forests are really critical to capturing holding and sequestering carbon we we protect forests with climate in mind Mm. we must protect the ocean with climate 
in mind. That's, I think it's one of the greatest opportunities we now have to quickly make a, a enormous difference for, for the carbon, yeah. the carbon capture. And, that, and that's it. We, we are living in the time now where we've got so much information, we can actually do something with it. Yes. Rather than being blinkered and blind and downright rude, <laughs> we can do something with this information that we've got and we yes. can make the world a better place. So getting the kids involved, mm. getting the kid and grown-ups involved, you know, I, I, one of the things <laughs> I, what I love about diving is that it makes everybody kind of on a, like, like a kid again. Mm. You, 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 you take a someone who's spent his or her life, uh, you know, behind a desk or wearing a coat and tie or <laughs> whatever it is, and you would take them out into the ocean. It's just so disarming. It is. You, it's a great you, leveler. It really and truly is. And suddenly you begin asking questions that you wouldn't think of asking if you never take the plunge, if you never dive in. Mm. I'm such an enthusiastic supporter of diving as a transformative experience. My mother actually waited until she was 81. Really? And <laughs> I don't know why. I thought I tried. I didn't try hard enough. <laughs> I, wish I, could. I, I Literally, I... I, it, I was just, I guess, so wrapped up in all the other things that I was doing, and she seemed perfectly happy doing all the things she was doing. But she, she would tell you, don't wait till you're 81 yeah. if you can. But if you are, it's not too late. Yeah. You can take diving at such a wide range of 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 effort and expert or whatever it is. You can make it really easy, really simple, really just like a, a walk in the park yeah. in clear, warm water. And, of course, snorkelers are, are part of this, of this army of, of uh, power yeah. to transform the world. But you can always go a little deeper. And, I, I'm, as, as you know, I'm dedicated to developing submersibles that can take kids and <laughs> CEOs <laughs> and I'm a, anybody I'm a kid. in I'm, yeah, a there I'm, a li- you are. I'm living I, proof that men you, get older, but we never grow up. <laughs> Neither do scientists of any, yeah. whatever the gender. <laughs> oh, dear me. That's one of the um, things I, I tried to express in, in this book, to take people on a journey to, to be able to uh, – not too many people do what I've done, read it cover to cover, <laughs> but – there, there. It is a journey, uh, beginning, middle, and end. But within it, there's stories that you can take one bite at a time. But together, they tell the story of the ocean. But in particular, there's. I mean, how do people overcome the lack of gills? What is it mm. that? How have we technologically, in a remarkably short period of time, been able to go from standing on the shore? and being able to go to the deepest part of the ocean. Only a handful of people have done this, but some have. Only a handful of people have stepped on the moon. 
and we've come a long way since stepping on the moon. And we're getting there more rapidly now in the ocean, but we're, we're still lagging far behind access to the skies above. Yeah. But yeah. let's get with it. Um, again, on the book front, I've, I've got to say, um, I'm not a massive reader. I'm not the kind of person that picks up a book and starts reading. I'd rather go and do something else like diving or photography or whatever. However, I think it's been, oh, it must be seven, eight years since I've actually read a book cover to cover. <laughs> um, and Ocean <laughs> is the first book <laughs> that I have done from co cover to cover. Oh, I've that's two of us. <laughs> yeah, I've thoroughly enjoyed it. It is oh. mesmerizingly beautiful with so much information. It's fantastic. And it's, Thank you for diving into that oh, endeavor. Brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> and like I said in the introduction, I never thought I'd be talking to you about a National Geographic book. I mean, it's amazing. Um, but the, the book is due out later this year? comes out in November. And the oh, opportunity to use the pandemic as a time of reflection and just trying to put the pieces together, mm. uh, not just the observations that I've had the privilege of, of gathering over the years, but by, by really e examining the massive amount of information that has been accumulated. We've learned more about the ocean since the 1950s, since I began diving, than during all preceding human history. Hmm. Imagine in the 1950s, the idea that continents move around was still considered mostly <laughs> something to laugh about, that, that there's no way that you could move the continental masses on a scale that now we know has happened yeah. and that they're in constant motion. It just happens to be slow motion, yeah. geologically stately pace, like a very long time, long distance dance. Yeah. We did not even know what you, what you need to start asking questions and trying to find the answers. Like who first discovered the, existence of oxygen in the atmosphere who first identified the presence of viruses when did we first know about photosynthesis uh, there's so much that we did not know 500 years ago when the first circumnavigation of the world took place hmm. when you know for the you think about everything that we take for granted today, language, uh, the ability to talk to people, the way we're talking. You're on the other side of the world, and we're talking, sharing images and stories. That's such a gift that we now have available to us. So for me, being able to kind of kick back over the last year plus, two years, actually, I started in 2019, but um, it was a, it was almost something I probably would have tried to do, but I would not have been as 
effective at assembling the pieces that have come forth in this book had I continued my usual running around the world schedule of trying to <laughs> pack in as much as I could, especially being in the ocean yeah. as much as I could. Hey there, listeners. Rod here again. Apologies for breaking in, but just wanted to let you know that Sylvia's book, Ocean, A Global Odyssey, is being released November this year, but is already available for pre-order online. You'll find a link in the show notes. Make sure to go and reserve your copy. And don't forget to subscribe to the pod. Now, back to Matt and Sylvia. Early 2020, I was in the Seychelles and then hit dry dock. <laughs> yeah. Until... Until just a couple of weeks ago, I was able to go to the Azores for a brief visit to launch a new hope spot in the Azores and got back in the water again. And oh, I really soaked it up. Oh, <laughs> my <laughs> dry rot is a terrible thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It took a lot hey, of well, showers. If, <laughs> if, 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 I'm, if I'm successful with the hope spot for Cape Nelson, you'll have to come and open that oh, one. Please. I'll, be, I'll be your guide. <laughs> let's let's do it. I would be so happy to work with you on that. I that agree. would be That's, amazing. It's a beautiful, beautiful location. It, and we should do everything we can to keep it that way. Some hope spots start out in great shape, and our job is to not let them degrade. Hmm. Many of them, like right here in San Francisco Bay, it's a hope spot. Uh-huh. But it is not exactly pristine. There are yeah. places in it that are remarkably in good in good condition, despite all the changes. But overall, we know that we can take actions right now yeah. that will go from where we are to a better place. Mm. And that's what the Hope Spots are about. Yeah. That create this empowerment of people to do what they can to make the world, to make the ocean better every day. We can do things. It's not hopeless by any means. It, it, it is a location that's just not being hit by commercial fishing, et cetera, et cetera, just yet. But I think it's it's one of those locations in the world that is and can easily be a target. So to be able to protect it would be fantastic. Prevent it before it starts. I heartily encourage you to do it. And anyone who's listening, if there's a place that you know and love and want to help or look at those that, that already exist. I, th- I love the idea. And we are working with Patty and we're mm-hmm. working with other organizations as well, but to get divers to use their mighty powers of observation and photography, and their sense of, of adventure and of caring mm. and, when they are diving in a, in a hope spot to to be a part of the action identify you can go on the website and find out who the champions are locally yeah. and 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 be and get involved do what you can to be a part of the action and if a place you know and love like when you're describing in Raja Ampat you know take the initiative you know, you can become a champion yeah. or you can find a champion that you can work with in the area. And it's really exciting. We are making progress. Going back to when I began diving, as I said, there were no areas of the ocean that were protected. The Great Barrier Reef 
1975, the, the Park Authority was really a pioneer in that endeavor. And they still have a way to go to be, embrace all of the park that they call a park with enhanced protection. Right now, most of it is really still open for various kinds of exploitation. But those areas that are really highly protected today, 3%, it doesn't sound like much, but it's so much more <laughs> than even going back to 1990, when there was a fraction of 1%. Yeah. So we're beginning to scale up. Maybe we'll get to that tipping point where it accelerates. Mm. That's what we're aiming for, to get 30% by 2030, half of the ocean, at least by 2050. Yeah. Why? It's our life support system. We're really protecting ourselves by protecting the ocean. What could be more exciting than that? And knowing that it works when you embrace a place with care and take the pressure off. It's amazing how fish tend to come back. Mm. You can go too far. We have lost many species on my watch. We've, we've taken pieces of the thread of the fabric of life, and just pulled them out. They're gone. Yeah. Uh, we can't put them back, but we certainly don't have to let it get any worse. We have the power to protect. We certainly know how to destroy, but we also have this superpower of understanding and and taking action strategically in, in ways that really count. And, and that's what that's what keeps me oh, excited yeah. every day. <laughs> <laughs> and talking with you, thank you for the chance to 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 share stories and and listen to you. Silva, it's it, it's fantastic. It really is, and I feel truly honoured to be speaking to you about what we both love, and and having the opportunity to read my first book in seven eight years. Now, <laughs> 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 uh, um, what's what what's What's the future for us? What's your thoughts on our future? You know, we've just touched on it there, but the reality, are we on that cusp of improvement? We have a choice. We know what to do. The evidence is all around us that our life support system is in decline. We know why. There are a lot of other creatures on Earth that are really smart, I keep thinking about dolphins and whales and elephants, and I've met some pretty smart fish in my time. <laughs> but they cannot know what we know, what you know, what 10-year-olds of today know, that no humans could know at the time that I was a child. The children of today are really cause for hope because they have grown up in a time when knowledge has been more accessible than at any time in all of history, and there's more knowledge there, meaningful knowledge. Mm. Knowledge that we know how to provide food for ourselves without killing the ocean. We, we, we've got the evidence. We, we know what to do. We know how to 
feed ourselves with a lighter touch on the land. We can restore much of the of the of the surface of the planet, land and sea together, hmm. and and more effectively use parts that have already been converted without carving up new wild productive areas. We should not take another inch of intact forest. We really should not. We should say, thank you forest for keeping me alive. <laughs> and it's, it's true with deserts too. We need healthy desert systems because there are answers there about how life pers- can go on with under very dry circumstances. And certainly in Australia, so much of Australia is naturally dry, but Mm. there's life there. They've got strategies for survival that we could learn a great deal from how do they do that (laughs) instead of plowing it up and trying to irrigate it and turn it into something that we think of as better. Maybe we are losing some of the best secrets to life by destroying these these special wild natural areas and the same is true in the ocean we we look at a a muddy place or a sandy area and we think it's there's nothing there until you really look mm-hmm. and realize that they're just so full of life in the ocean itself that places that you can just embrace with your arms are filled with creatures and, and they're going about the business of of eating and being eaten, <laughs> this flow of nutrients, the chemistry of life, the miracle of life. And we we can be a part of of of, of all of that with an insight and awareness that no other creature has the capacity to do. Mm that dolphins must be aware of the diversity of phytoplankton. They're probably curious about jellyfish and and the tiny little creatures that they can see as they're swimming through the ocean. But they don't have the body of knowledge that we have about the chemistry of life, how it all ties together. They, They may have a general sense of it in a way that we're just beginning to grasp, but what you, you think about what we have the special capacity to understand and take action that that can result in a, a place in the universe that is an enduring home, a long-term place for us, or we can continue doing what we're doing now. And just consume the natural world, and then it's gone, and so are we. <laughs> you think about maybe five percent of the old growth forests remain in North America. We've managed to level the amazing old trees, the systems that had taken all preceding history to come together, and we have just torn them apart thinking that we're improving an old marsh that's been around for 20,000 years. Mm. And we think we're improving it by tearing it up and putting a parking lot right there or a hotel right on the waterfront. 
there used to be a, so much, about a third of San Francisco Bay has been filled. <laughs> and there are skyscrapers on what used to be the bay. Yeah. And the 1800s, much of that dredging and filling took place to convert ocean to land. It's happening all over the world. We call it reclamation. We call it development. These are these are these are false words. Yeah, it's, it's not development. It's the end of the scale, isn't it? And we're not reclaiming anything. We're claiming it, but we're not reclaiming it. Mm. it wasn't ours well, in the first place? Anyway, yeah. we time I, to give back. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's time to take what we know, the knowledge, and, and to aggressively. If, if you have questions. Don't just be content with ignorance. Ask, you know, go. <laughs> there are a lot of things we still don't know. I think the biggest discovery of, the, of all time is the magnitude of our ignorance hmm. and, and, and respect for what we don't know. If you can just get that through our collective minds, it might cause us to be less aggressive about converting what remains of the natural wild places to short-term use that we think of as an improvement because basically it's not deep sea mining right now. We're taking these ancient systems, taking literally hundreds of millions of years in the deep sea places never disturbed by human activity before even the deep sea fishing hasn't gotten to the, 4,000 meters down, but there are now billions of dollars invested in mining the deep sea with these amazing machines. It is amazing. You admire the engineering, but you also are horrified at the thought we would deliberately go tear up intact wild places that are part of the carbon cycle, part of the network of existing life that we would deliberately unravel yeah. for short-term gain. It, it really makes no sense at all. I have a question for you. Have you been diving in Sydney Harbour? I have. I love it. Um, it's cold. It's not, it's not tropical water, but um, yeah, I do love it. We were down yesterday. Yesterday, went down oh. to Shelley Beach. We didn't dive, um, but it was just looking absolutely beautiful. And we're so lucky here. It's it's a beautiful, beautiful underwater world here. Um, Have you I encountered the, the big cuttlefish? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Aren't they the best? <laughs> <laughs> they're... <Not> um, <laughs> they're, they're center, center show at the moment. Um, we've got a... Um, a Facebook group. There's like over 4,000 divers in it now, and it's just for Sydney. And oh. um, we have like visibility reports. It's called Sydney Viz or Viz. And um, constantly the cuttlefish are up and little videos and photos and um, all the other underwater species we have. Um, in fact, you've you've dived over here, haven't you? Oh, yes. Yes. And, the, and, you, and you saw our little PJs, our little Port Jacksons? Yes. Absolutely. 
there are plenty of those floating around at the moment. Uh, it's when I think about how so many people have are depriving themselves of the joy of getting to know the part of the planet that makes our existence possible that they they don't they don't just dive in i mean how many people in sydney have not done what you've done yeah. <laughs> there is that concern that keeps some people out of the water and it really baffles me why and that is there's sharks out there and they'll yeah. eat me i mean <laughs> <laughs> i i used to in the early days be a little bit concerned when i saw sharks underwater because of the this this idea that they're out to get me and now i'm mm. concerned when i don't see sharks mm. and that's most of the time because it's a sign that the ocean is in trouble when you don't see sharks. Yeah. And the more people have actually gone into the ocean, the the more it's obvious that sharks are not out to get us. Every once in a while, maybe a shark will out of curiosity, perhaps, or maybe sometimes hunger because we've taken all their food for our tables and left nothing much for the rest of the creatures out there. But, you know, we take so many bites out of them. There are millions of sharks that are consumed either as soup or steaks or just their fins. It's just crazy that we have an appetite for sharks. It just doesn't make any sense about why we should do this. Yeah. Or, or to kill them for sport or to kill them because you think you're doing something good for, for the world. That's really perverse. We really must change that. And it's, it's people um, well, all over the world. Everyone who has an opinion and the right opinion on how we need to protect sharks. And it's a culmination of all those people coming together that's actually going to make the voice heard. And we compare the media nowadays to what it was in the 80s following Spielberg and Jaws, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Mm. I think that, albeit they still do say shark attacks rather than shark bites, which is more <laughs> correct, we are, we are seeing this, this lean towards an improved view of sharks and that you can only a, come from all of those individuals that have got a collective voice. And you have some real champions, Ron and Valerie Taylor, mm. who were based in Sydney for so many years. But they started out thinking, as did I, that you had to fear sharks. And they became very, very strong voices for protecting them because they could see what divers can see for themselves. They're not a threat. And in fact, they're beautiful and they're really important to the integrity, the health of the ocean, which is important to our health. And, and I also love the fact that it was Valerie Taylor who was successful in getting a part of the Great Barrier Reef protected 
to to really protect fish, mm. the potato cod in the cod hole that yeah. people used to go and revel in the experience of being around these giant fish bigger than you, Matt. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, a lot heftier than you. And yeah. they're curious. They're like puppies gathering around the divers. I had the joy of diving there. Oh goodness. I guess in the, in the 1980s, hmm. but it was not protected. And uh, at first, and I mean, Valerie was heartbroken when she went back to visit this special place and, and somebody had come there and just fished them out, just killed them. They're easy to kill because they just, they're like big puppies. They sit there and it's like spearing a sofa to spear yeah. a, a big grouper. They're, they're, Innocent, they're curious, they're not out anyway. <laughs> so <laughs> she was infuriated and motivated yeah. and successful. I, I want to get on the show at some point. I was, um, I a, there's a, a good mate of mine, Don Silcock. I had him on the show last week and uh, we were talking about bits and pieces. And he just, you know, oh yeah, I was, I was diving down at uh, Clifton Gardens the other day and popped up and yeah, I had a good quick chat with uh, Valerie Taylor. Oh. Bloody hell, why, why weren't you texting me so I could come down and say hello? You know? <laughs> she is a global treasure. Yeah. And what she has witnessed, working with Stan Waterman, working with Peter Benchley, working with people who have had such influence over the fate of sharks over the years, good and bad. Mm. But Benchley had no idea. Peter Benchley, who wrote Jaws, had no idea what a... <laughs> what he was setting loose on the world. Yeah. Just unintentional. He spent most of the rest of his life trying to give back. Well, yeah. You know, these things happen. Yeah. Um, well, I've got um, Andrew Fox is coming on at some point. Uh, Rodney Fox's son. Yes. Again. He's a massive advocate for the, the bigger sharks. And he could be really angry at the sharks, but no, he realizes that it's their ocean, really. It's ours, mm. too. But, um, no, he's one of the greatest champions mm. for sharks, despite the fact that he almost died from being <laughs> sampled by one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, at, at, the, at, at the other end of the scale, I've got a couple of friends. I'll, I'll tell you a quick story. Yes, please. Um, it was back, uh, oh, I was probably about nine, ten years ago now, um, sat at a bar on a beach on the island of Koh Tao in Thailand. Not me, but two of my friends, Dan and Laura. And they were chatting over a beer on how to protect sharks. And they came up with the idea, looking out over the beach, there's a, a smaller island just off the coast called Nang Yuang. So they decided it would be a good idea to swim around the island in the name of sharks. So a thing called Swim for Sharks was was born over a beer with these two chatting about it at a bar. And Nang Yuang is 3.4 kilometers around. So they had a race. The next year they had another race and it continued. And it's oh. continued to grow. And you know, a bit unfortunate with the pandemic hitting, but it's not stopped them from doing the swim for sharks around Nang Yuang. Since then, in the last year or two, because people can't travel there to do it, 
they've started popping up doing their own little swim for sharks around the world. Now, today, about nine hours after we've finished this chat, Dan and Lara and a few other people are going to be swimming, crazy as they are, they're going to be swimming (laughs) in a lake in the UK. And it's going to be the first swim for sharks ever done in the UK. I love that. Incredible. Your people were afraid afraid to go in their bathtub for a while after (laughs) Jaws came out. (laughs) So So, swimming in a lake is a great idea. (laughs) So how how about, if if you don't mind, Sylvia, could you give them some words of inspiration that they can mull over while freezing themselves off doing (laughs) 3.4 kilometers in a lake in the UK? (laughs) Well, they certainly have my strong support and I salute them for standing up, not standing up for diving down, getting in there. (laughs) I personally think they're a little bit crazy. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, whatever it takes, I think all of us should figure out what can I do? However wild and crazy it might seem to others. If it works for you, then go for it. And sometimes it will attract attention and make a difference in a way that if you were just like writing a book, <laughs> might not have the same impact. Yeah. <laughs> but we all so, do our, our thing in whatever whatever ways really motivate you. Go for it. Yeah. What's what? You've got an abundance of motivation, but, but we, we've got the book that's coming out in November. What's what's next? What's what's coming next for Sylvia? Onward and downward. Of course, <laughs> <laughs> working on little submarines to, to to initially have access to a thousand meters to the edge of light, where the twilight zone, and to really engage as many people as we can possibly encourage to go see for themselves. There should be fleets of these little. One, two, three passenger subs, small enough to be transported, but safe. The technology has been been really developed, tried and true, over well since the 1960s, using acrylic spheres mm. as the transparent pressure hulls to enable people to safely make these excursions down to. You know, it's deep when you're holding your breath to go to a thousand meters, <laughs> a thousand, not a hundred, a thousand meters. Uh-huh. But there's still beyond that. A few people have gone to full ocean depth. I would love to be able to have glass as the material that would inspire engineers to be creative. We know that it can be done. Glass spheres, smallish ones, you know, you know, 30 centimeters across can, but you need to get big ones, big enough and safe enough for humans to go. So you can go with looking at a tiny porthole to the deepest parts of the ocean. That's been done first time in 1960, second time in 2012 with James Cameron, more recently with Victor Vescovo, who's made several descents and taken individuals down as 
observers to full ocean depth in the Mariana Trench. And it's tremendous that we now can say with confidence, absolutely, this is it's like flying in the sky. There was mm. a time when people thought that was a ridiculous idea until <laughs> somebody did it. <laughs> and now everybody's doing it, if you will. And I don't fear traffic jams underwater. Mm. We, we do have traffic jams on the surface. The, the shipping traffic has become just such a, a important commercial endeavor, but it's also had some impact that we need to evaluate and rethink. But under the surface, the biggest problem is people don't know what's there mm. and they're casual about destroying it because they don't know. They think it yeah. doesn't matter. If I could take fishermen down in little submarines to look what happens when you trawl the ocean floor before and after. Here's what a natural, healthy sea surface on the, on the bottom of the ocean looks like. Here's what happens when you bulldoze it. Here's the destruction you cause, and it doesn't go away. Those trawl marks are there, like, permanently. Yeah. yeah. And that's even more so the deeper you go into the place where mining is now proposed because the processes there move truly at a geological pace. But yeah. we're, we're proposing on a mega scale to carve up these last wild places in the deep sea. And, and, and we're putting ourselves at risk. I don't mean individuals who are out there doing it, although that's part of it. They're, they're not going down. They're sending robots we're sending heavy machinery, but we do need to go and observe it and witness it and expose it and stop it. Mm. We just can't afford it. We can't afford to lose more of the wild places that are needed to hold the planet steady and recover some of what has been lost. And that's a that's a good point there. It, it it does have the opportunity to recover if we give it space and time to do so. The some places recover more readily than others, mm -hmm. but in the deep sea, the processes move at a much slower pace. I mean, fish live longer. I mean, some fish, even a coral reef, live to be forty or fifty years old. Mm. But the think about an orange roughy. When they first began to be extracted, when they were discovered in large quantities around seamounts, nobody asked how old they were yeah. or what they were doing in these gatherings while well, they're apparently breeding aggregations. And they've been stripped away. And it turns out that it takes 25 years or so for them to mature. They don't spawn every year. They can live to be more than a century old. Yeah. Uh, the Greenland shark is thought to live to be at least four centuries old. Mm -hmm. And they're being commercially extracted from the North Sea. I don't know why there's a market for them. I don't it's know why. Crazy, isn't it? And they don't mature. Sexual maturity for Greenland sharks like 150 years old. 
something like is, that. You know, it's just whatever it is, they've got to be, if, if you think in terms of value worth dollars and cents, they've got to be worth more to us alive than dead. There's so oh, much yeah. we'd like to know about them. How do they live? What do they do? What, what about their nature enables them to live so long? Might there be secrets we could unravel about, about their chemistry, about their, their life story that mm. would help increase our longevity? And I don't know. They're just questions that we may never have a chance to ask if we lose them. Yeah, yeah. And that's the thing. We've got to stop, you know, losing species. Um, I mean, you've, you've mentioned tuna a few times now, and, you know, it's probably the most commonly known fish in the sea um, and on the supermarket shelf. But <laughs> when you put it into perspective and look at, like, the the bluefin tuna and, and its own um, sexual maturity and trying to reproduce with we're pulling them out of the water quicker than they're than they're than they're breeding, and it, it takes a lot of tuna to have even a few tuna. You know that that mm. they it looks like the world should be back wall to wall with tuna because they when they spawn there's so many opportunities for these little tiny fish to be creatures to uh, populate the ocean, but. All the, they are part of the food chain. They're part of the nutrient cycle, part of the ocean chemistry that most of the eggs produced never make it through the gauntlet of the carbon cycle in action, the nutrient cycle in action, that you get to a point where there's so few tuna that the reproduction is diminished that the number of, t- of eggs that even get fertilized uh, is not the same as when you've got masses of simultaneously spawning adults. It's true with cod. It's true with a lot of these uh, mass spawning species. Now, there are others that, <laughs> like sharks, that have very few young by comparison. Every shark, well, Every fish counts, no matter what the appearance of it is. When you see a massive school of herring, you think, oh, there's so many. We could never eliminate or, you know, we, our job is to go out there and take as many as we can. But actually, we've taken so many of these small fish that their numbers are declining as well. That means the food chain. Think of all the creatures that require little fish for for their sustenance. They cannot get to phytoplankton. Uh, I think you asked me the question in in preparation for this conversation. What is your favorite undersea creature? I was going to ask, you, how, how do you say it? Because I can't even say it. Uh, <laughs> I can see the word, but I can't. So, uh, you can say it slowly. It's pro-chlorococcus. You can say it. Yeah. Pro. Prochlorococcus. That's it. Prochlorococcus. It's easy <laughs> once you let it roll off your tongue a few times. Put it in a, in a, you know, a poem or a song. Prochlorococcus. <laughs> <laughs> and pretty soon you've got it locked in your brain. It'll stay there. 
These are the organisms that were discovered for the first time in 1986. Oh, really? And are now known to generate maybe 20% of the oxygen in the atmosphere. Wow. So what else don't we know that's out there, down there, making the Earth habitable for us? Because they're so small, apparently the smallest photosynthesizing creature on the planet that we know about so far anyway. <laughs> what else is out there? It's it's a kind of bacterium, blue-green. Yeah. Used to be classified, that category of life is, is algae, but we now know they're bacteria. But they're so abundant, so widespread, a number of variations on the theme of Prochlorococcus, but collectively from polar oceans to the tropics. They are doing the heavy lifting along with diatoms, with coccolithophorids. I could have put that one in there too, because they do a lot of <laughs> heavy lifting in terms of capturing carbon and, and providing food for large numbers of creatures in the sea. Mm. Um, but Prochlorococcus, I think because First of all, it's a relatively new discovery of great importance. It's like a wake-up call. Yeah. What else are we destroying, changing out there, just because we haven't known how to look for it until now? We should use the precautionary principle. If you don't know, why would you presume that that a higher, better use of, let's say, a rainforest is to turn it into a sugarcane field <laughs> than, than, its, than its original um, composition of this, these diverse systems. Mm. And I think of how much forested land all over the world has, has been destroyed in my lifetime. I mean, yeah. directly, deliberately, because we did not, value we did not understand the value and it, it's 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 a difference in terms of a, of a cost and 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 a, and a true value mm. i value my life <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it's hard to put a dollar sign on it <laughs> yeah and we should value the the life of all of humankind going forward and all the rest of of life on earth it's currently at risk because of us and mostly of us not understanding the consequences of our actions hmm. but that's i can look back and say you didn't know you didn't understand and really terrible what you did but you didn't know so okay but now we know yeah now there's no excuse yeah let's do something about it why would we eliminate even one more old growth tree, hmm. or let alone one whole old growth forest or an old growth coral reef yeah. or an old growth deep sea manganese nodule field, which is older than all the others put together. Yeah. Yeah. Sylvia, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you and, um, I sincerely thank you for coming on the show. 
And I also thank you for everything you've done. But so much more to do. We need everybody to pitch in, you know? Hell yeah. <laughs> and the great thing I is mean. we all can. We that's you know, people think that it's hopeless, I'm just one person. Huh. Just one person times eight billion makes all the difference in the world. Mm. Just imagine if we started doing one thing and somebody else starts doing one thing yeah. and in a positive way. And we're all doing things in the other direction right now that are dragging us down. All it takes is a commitment. Mm. Like those champions for the hope spot saying, I'm, I'm going to step up and do something right here. And I'm going to bring you all along with me. <laughs> Hell Pretty yeah. soon you got this wave. I think we're perilously close. You know, a lot of doom and gloom, rightfully so, about the tipping points for disaster. Mm. Whether it's in pandemics, that the, what we're going through right now could be the first, likely to be the first of many because we've so set ourselves up to be susceptible to pandemics. Mm -hmm. And you look at climate change, we're so close to the edge of going past the point where no matter what we do, we're going to continue to see an increasingly overheated planet. And yeah. with, with that, we go into infinity over the edge. But there's also the other tipping point where the, this awareness is certainly growing. The other tipping point about embracing the land, the sea, with real care. Hope Spots Mission Blue is one approach. Others, National Geographic has a project called Pristine Seas, identifying some of these last wild places and doing it whatever is possible to encourage full protection. Mm. The United Nations saying 30% by 2030. So there is this wave. If we could just tip in the right direction instead of the wrong direction, we're on a roll right now. Let's go for it. Let's protect the diversity of life. Let's get the divers speaking with a sense of, of purpose, of doing their part, we come from such diverse backgrounds. We who surf, we who dive, we who go to the sea and ships, we who, who love nature, whatever, who the, mm. which, which community you wish to be a part of or part of all of them that yeah. do what you can. And let's, uh, <laughs> let's go tipping. Yeah. And it's, it's communication. Communication is key. And if we have Absolutely. communication, we can tip in the right direction. If you don't know, you can't care. Mm. Sylvia, I think uh, I think I should uh, let <laughs> you get on with your day now. And um, again, I applaud you for everything you've done and continue to do. And it, I and appreciate I, you coming, taking your time to come on the show. Uh, very I much salute so. you for what you're doing. It's all in this together. Yay! You're up. <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much Sylvia and thank you all for listening goodbye everybody this is Scuba Go Go Under the Sea the podcast for the inquisitive diver